So we began to practice today Vipassana meditation. We've had five days of metta practice. And so I want to talk about Vipassana practice, but I want to talk about the relationship between that practice and metta practice so that it seems... um, so that the, the interrelationship between the two practices, which I think is very important and very clear, is clear to you as well. It's not an arbitrary segue. It's not by accident. We didn't just do one a little bit and now we'll do another. There are some ways in which they're really quite the same practice, and certainly some ways in which they seem different. Metta is classically thought of as a concentration practice and Vipassana is an insight practice. From time to time I teach classes or courses in local colleges in California, and I teach um, either courses in Buddhism or courses in elementary meditation. In basic meditation course, I use a book by Dan Goldman called um, Varieties of the Meditative Experience. And in the beginning of the book, he has an overview of concentration practices and what they're like and what they do, and insight practices and what they're like and what fruits they produce in general. And then the whole rest of the book is how in all spiritual traditions cross-culturally there are both concentration practices and insight practices. So in the list of the fruits or the goals or the... Um, results of concentration practice, there's a whole list of wonderful things. It says people who do samadhi practice feel happiness and contentment and ease and rapture and equanimity. Then it says the people who are doing insight practice see things just the way they are. And usually at that point, somebody says, you know, that first group sounds a whole lot better to me. Why should I do that other one? Not to in any way pass over the enormous beauty and um, extraordinary uh, magic, really, of metta practice. Imagine thinking of having a heart that was able to open to all beings uniformly, indiscriminately, with goodwill. That's so inspiring. Imagine what we would be like if we could do that. Imagine what the world would be like if everybody could do that. It's an extraordinary, glorious practice, really. But as Joseph was pointing out last night, the Buddha himself did many years of very serious, assiduous, difficult concentration practices, and in them, through them, developed the most rarefied kinds of concentration. He was so good at the practices that he did that the teachers that he studied with invited him to teach along with them. I said, you've now reached the highest pinnacle of what we can do in this practice. Why don't you teach with me? And even though he had, in his through his samadhi practice, experienced all kinds of extraordinary, limitless realms, what he realized is that he had not yet discovered the cause of suffering and the end of suffering through those practices, and chose instead to go off on his own and discovered came to realization about the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and taught that for the rest of his life. In a certain sense, I actually see the practice and the way of life that he taught as um, a broader but same tone of heart practice than metta practice. When we think about metta practice as establishing the kind of heart that is open uniformly and indiscriminately towards all beings. I think of the Vipassana practice as conditioning the kind of heart that's open and a balance and 
even way to all experience. Imagine, that's totally inspiring to me. To be able to live at ease with every moment of experience. Both practices, both ways of being, to be able to have a heart that's open to all beings, to be able to have a heart that's open to all experiences, both of them reflect a heart that's peaceful. I think to myself so much when I, when I think about what's the quality of the peaceful heart in metta practice or in vipassana practice. I think not so much about a heart from which feelings flow out towards people, although that certainly happens sometimes and sometimes quite strongly, and not so much of a heart that accepts and takes on to itself things as they arise, but a heart that stays in perfect balance, a heart in which rancor and bitterness, resentment doesn't arise. That's so inspiring to me. So to think about the possibility of having a heart so firmly established in balance and in wisdom that bitterness and rancor didn't arise that with metta practice, we hope to be able towards all people to remain open, say, now him, now her, now him, now her. With vipassana practice, to have the heart that remains open towards all moments of experience, now this, now that, now this, now that. Imagine, this is just what it is, and here I am for it. Of course, the instructions are quite different. In these days of metta practice, we've been doing something. There's been an instruction. Bring to mind in a continuous way these phrases, placing the attention close to the phrases all the time. We were doing something. We were conditioning the situation. We were conditioning samadhi in the mind. When we have vipassana instructions, we say, don't condition the situation. Just be there. Just sit there, just walk, just eat. Just be wherever you are. Stay awake and know what's happening. Did you ever think about the fact that it's a curious thing in Vipassana meditation. There's a way in which the instructions for the practice are the same as the fruits of practice. When I thought about that quite recently, I thought it's really a kind of a catch-22 in this situation. We give the instructions to, say, sit or walk or be calm with calmness and alertness. Be fully present in each moment of experience, we say, so that insight will arise, wisdom will accrue, equanimity will develop, and the fruits of which will be, we'll be able to be, with each moment of experience, calmly and alertly and without resistance, being fully present in each moment. You think about it, the goal of that practice is exactly the same as the instruction for that practice. Sometime I think I'll be teaching away and suddenly someone will stand up and say, wait a minute, this is catch-22. We're going to revolt here. You have just said, in order to achieve the fruits for which I came to practice, I should do that. I don't know how to do that yet. There's a story that's um, uh, in a quite a famous child psychology book. There's a story about a family in New York that's going to London for a summer holiday, and everybody's going, and everybody's very excited. And everybody's getting more and more excited, and the three-year-old in the family is getting more and more agitated. And finally, when somebody realizes that, and they say, listen, what's the matter? He says, my whole family, my mother and my father and my sister and brother and me, they say they're flying to Europe this summer, and I haven't learned to fly yet. <laughs> the same. They say, in order to be enlightened, 
to experience the enlightened heart, sit there and be enlightened. I didn't learn to do that yet. I can't do that yet. I think what we mostly mean is we can't do it continuously, but we can do it one moment at a time. And really that's all that this practice calls for doing, just one moment at a time. It doesn't even matter how many moments at a time. I think to myself that it's so important to remember that when the mind wakes up and sees the fact that it's been filled with thoughts, filled with distractions, in that moment there's such a moment of clarity, such a moment of freedom. Frequently there's a tendency to either start stories about Oh dear, I've been distracted so long. Who knows how long? Once again, I've been distracted. I'm such a terrible yogi. All the stories about past. Or, I'll never make it in this practice. I'll never get anywhere with it. I won't be able to go anywhere. All the stories about the future. And that wonderful moment of really alertness isn't really available to be present in. We miss that moment. I have a particular technique that I do, which I like to inspire you to do. In a moment that there's clarity about the fact that the mind has been filled with distraction, when I wake up, say, ah, it's just the same as waking up from a sleep. When that happens, I say to myself, am I breathing in or breathing out? That's what I do. I look to see if this is an in-breath or an out-breath. Don't spend any time at all in a recrimination. Where was I? What does that mean? Why aren't I here? Where am I going? I wake up, I see breathing in and breathing out, and I rest in that. I like to think that that's actually an instruction from the Buddha, or it's a variation on an instruction from the Buddha, where he said we ought to be paying attention from the moment we wake up in the morning until the moment that we fall asleep at night. And he gave the instruction that you ought to know when you wake up in the morning, whether you woke up on an in-breath or an out-breath, and whether you fell asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. And I take that really seriously, because if we are sitting or walking and distracted, there's a moment in which we wake up. That's not much different from the moment that we wake up in the morning. Waking up is waking up. In that moment, I see if it's an in-breath or an out-breath, so that I use that moment of clarity to be present in it. It makes a much easier practice. Let's go back to the original question. That samadhi practice sounds really good. Really, why should we do this other practice? Shouldn't we think about this other practice more? Apart from the fact that the Buddha himself said it was really the end of suffering. Why, really? Especially if metta practice conditions a certain amount of ease and happiness and pleasantness in the body. And vipassana practice is being with experience just as it is. Many people say, listen, my experience just as it is is very painful. Why would I want to be with my experience just as it is and open to it? Who knows even what will be my next experience and my next one? And it's really a valid question. Why should I? My experience is painful. There would be other practices that could condition my experience. Why should I do that? It's actually three questions. Why should I open to my experience? How should I open to my experience? And what will happen if I open to my experience? The why one is really important because that's where all the motivation comes from. Because we need to open up to our experience, to see it clearly. If we don't see it clearly, we don't understand well, we'll struggle with experience. 
And if we struggle with experience, then we suffer. That's really the meaning of suffering. A long time ago, when I had just started this practice, I didn't understand it very well. I was teaching a class in psychology or something, and uh, I thought it would be nice to start a particular class with an exercise in introductory paying attention to the breath. So I had people close their eyes and sit quietly and bring attention to the breath, and I gave some instructions about being with the breath in and out. And at the end of the time, I rang the bell and I said, well, now you've all had the first experience, the first lesson in training the mind. And somebody said, it's a good question, they said, what's so good about a trained mind? And I really hadn't thought enough to articulate it well, and I gave back a pretty glib answer, uh, not a good answer at all. I said, well, trained mind is better than an untrained mind. <laughs> I thought that sounded good, but actually it's glib. It's not a really good answer. Actually, of course it is, but it is for real reasons that a train, in, with a trained mind, clear seeing is often present. When clear seeing is present, skillful response happens, skillful action happens, action that leads to wholesome results happen. With an untrained mind, there isn't a lot of clear seeing and habitual reactions rather than skillful responses happen and then unwholesome results happen. So there really is a pragmatic reason for seeing clearly. When we talked about the hindrances the other night, talk about the difficult and uncomfortable mind states, when we are identified with our experience, then we see them as truths rather than as mind states, and we struggle with them. We see them as truths about ourselves. When we see them as mind states, when we see clearly that they come and go, that they have no substance of their own, they come and go and come and go, then we can acknowledge them, respond to them, take appropriate action. When we're in the middle of uh, mind states, and we have not seen them clearly. We struggle with them in a way that's kind of like if you step into taffy with two feet, and then push your hands in to try to push yourself out of it. And then you push and push and push and push, and you get more and more stuck in the way you're stuck. The ability to see clearly out of a mind that's habituated to seeing clearly enables us to skillfully not get stuck in our experience, not struggle with it so badly. Struggle is really the principal component of suffering. When I started this practice, I thought it was the end of pain. I was wrong. I really had a notion that somehow if I meditated enough, I would figure out how to be in such a, perhaps anesthetized state, I'm not sure, but in such a place that I would no longer feel pain. Clearly that wasn't what people were teaching, but that it was what I was hearing. I think that's clearly what I hoped to have to be true. And then after some time, I figured out that that isn't what's supposed to happen, that the Buddha did not teach the end of pain, but the end of suffering. And that pain is pain. And in incarnate bodies, in a life, in relationship, there is pain and pleasure, but certainly pain, and pain isn't suffering. That suffering really is the relationship that we have towards our pain, and indeed the relationship that we have towards the pleasant things in our life as well. That, that struggle exists when we want more of some things and less of other things, more of pleasant things and less of painful things. And there's a pushing and a pulling and a yearning and a wanting in the mind. 
and enough yearning and wanting to cloud the mind and we arrive at suffering. And Joseph began to talk last night about the teaching of the Buddha after his own enlightenment in the sermon of setting into motion the turning of the wheel where he really articulated in an extraordinarily succinct and wonderful way the truth about suffering and four noble truths that the fabric of life essentially is suffering that loss is what life is about that things are changing all the time that everything that comes into existence every conditioned thing as it arises is on the course of its own extinction that loss is the story of existence change is the story of existence having come into existence we are on our way out that everything is lost. Transient are all conditioned things, he said. Everything that arises passes away. That's the first truth that he taught. And the second is the truth about the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is not that that's true about life. That's true about life. The cause of suffering is that we want so much for it to be different. That we want so much either to have or to not have things that are pleasant or things that are painful. And that actually the cause of suffering is wanting it so badly to be different. Good translation for the word of wanting is craving. Sometimes people wonder about that because there's so many things that we want in life. We want a lot of things. Wanting is not a problem. Desire is not a problem. Sometimes desires are wholesome. Sometimes desires can be met and appropriately. Wanting is not a problem. Wanting in such a way that it obscures the mind, that it clouds the mind. Wanting desperately. Wanting when it can't be so, and not being able to be with it. The sense of serenity prayer says much the same thing. The strength to change what I can, and the ability to accept what I can't. The strength to change what I can change, and the ability to accept what I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's very basic dharma. And the third truth that he taught was that there's an end to suffering. When I teach at uh, uh, colleges with young people, I teach in a Catholic college near where I live, and uh, I teach mostly 18 and 19-year-olds who have come from, for the most part, upper-middle-class Catholic homes with devoted parents, they haven't often had a lot of pain or grief in their life. Many of them have been really led fortunate lives. And here I come to teach about Buddhism, and I start in about the fabric of life is suffering. And I see that their little brows start to knit, and they start to look worried about that. And I feel like I'm bringing them some terrible bad news. <laughs> And they worry, they, they ask things like, do Buddhists have birthday parties? And <laughs> so I start in with the first of the fabric of life of suffering. We don't get what we want, we get what we want, it doesn't last. We get what we want and it isn't what we want. Or it is, but then after a while it isn't. The things don't last. It's hard to find things for them. We talk about boyfriends and things that they've had and lost, and then they get it. And then I talk about... 
And I talk about things that they've wanted really badly and haven't been able to get, and how did it feel, and didn't it hurt in the mind. But all the time, I'm feeling a little badly because I really want them to love Buddha Dharma. They don't have to become Buddhists. I really want them to love it because I do. And I'm worried that all the furrowed brows. So I'm in a hurry, really, to get up to the third of the noble truth. <laughs> and so I can tell them that the end of suffering is actually possible. And that's really the third noble truth, that the end of suffering is possible through clear seeing, through wisdom, through understanding. And that the path to the end of suffering, the formula for arriving at the end of suffering, is the fourth of the fourth no- of the four noble truths. The path for the eight different ways to facilitate clear seeing, ways of understanding, ways of behaving in the world, ways of working with the mind to understand and see clearly. Vipassana, the word vipassana, means seeing clearly. This practice is seeing clearly through the distractions that cloud the mind, that cloud understanding. And when we see clearly through the distractions, we come to understand what's fundamentally true about experience. That it's impermanent. We come to see in a quite direct way the ephemeral nature of all experience, that everything in coming into being is disappearing, that temporality is really the fundamental truth of all conditioned phenomena. There's a sense of unsatisfactoriness about life experience that we come to grasp in a quite direct way. It doesn't mean that there are no birthday parties or no spring flowers or no fallings in love or no rainbows. It means that nothing lasts. It means that it's all quite insubstantial. There's nothing that's reliable. And we come to see in a quite direct way the nature of experience as it arises and passes away, we see it in its quite its impersonal form. We see experience arising and passing away, not by anyone or to anyone, just arising and passing away in quite an impermanent, impersonal way. And we begin to appreciate, through seeing that, that to struggle with experience, to try to hold on to it, or to try to push it away, is like to struggle with a ghost, or a phantom, or a cloud of smoke. Can't hold on, can't push them away. And in coming to see that, we stop doing that. And to whatever degree we stop doing that, we stop suffering. So it's very inspiring to think about that that's actually what we're doing. We are, in our time, coming to do the same thing that the Buddha did in his time. We are coming to see for ourselves that that's the truth. So the second question that one properly ought to ask when given the task open fully to every moment of experience. The first one is, why should I? That's why. How should I is the next one. How should I, especially if it's hard, especially if it's uncomfortable? We open to one moment of experience at a time. That's all we have at a time. We open to it as fully as we can, paying attention to see not only what's happening, 
but what's true about what's happening. We're not being with the breath to see that it's breath or that there are risings or fallings. We're being with breath to see change. We're being with breath to see insubstantiality. We're being with breath to see that it just comes and goes in quite an impersonal way. With every aspect of our experience that we are with, that we are able to be with in a full and open and balanced way, we come to see that all of those characteristics are true. Of any experience There is no aspect of any experience that isn't ephemeral, coming and going, unsubstantial, and quite impersonal. And we get to see that in a direct way, one moment at a time. Sometimes people worry when they begin to do practice because there are various levels of pain, pain in the body, pain in the mind, Stories of one's life that have been the most painful stories of one's life, recapitulating themselves. And people say, I'm afraid to go on with this practice. Frequently people come in interviews and say, oh, heavy sensation, either in the mind, in the body, a particular story is coming up, and I'm afraid to be with it. I used to think to myself, we don't particularly have prayers in vipassana practice we aren't taught prayers in vipassana practice so i made a prayer for myself that's a vipassana prayer and my prayer is i hope i can be open for this next moment of experience that's a vipassana prayer so you only have to do one moment at a time and i think that we're afraid to be open to experience even painful experience because we have a notion that we can't stand it, that it'll be so terrible that we can't stand it. I think usually we can. I think I began my practice because I was afraid of future pain. Actually, many people come to practice because some dreadful thing has happened to them in their life and they're having a really difficult time reconciling with it. I actually came to practice at a time that my life was quite wonderful and um, gratifying. I had and have a large family. I had a work that I do that was meaningful to me. I had a relationship that was meaningful to me. And I came to realize all of a sudden that it was impossible for it to go on without some problems coming up, without pain arising in my life. It's almost as if other people's pain suddenly woke me up to the fact of, of the inevitability of pain in every life. I think actually the quintessential moment for that was Perhaps an experience where a car drove up on the sidewalk in my neighborhood and hit two little girls, sisters, who were six and seven years old on their way to school, and they died. I didn't know them, but my daughter at that time was a second grader. And I heard that news in a way that I had never heard that news before. It's not as if in my whole life I didn't know that people died or that cars rode up on sidewalks or that sometimes there are earthquakes or fires or car wrecks or train wrecks or plane wrecks and things happen to people. But I never understood them in quite that same way. And who knows why the conditions at that moment were just what they were. But at that moment, I really got it, that it isn't possible. If not this, then something else. 
not this accident, that illness. If not this illness, that disappointment. I really got it, that it isn't possible. So that even though in my life at that point was quite happy, I developed a tremendous fear about future pain. And I used to think about if such and such and such would happen to someone that I loved, I couldn't stand it. Thought about if that had happened to one of my daughters, I couldn't stand it. My seeking in spiritual practice, I think, although I could not have articulated it that well at that time, was looking for something that was going to sustain me at that time in my life, which I knew would inevitably arrive, and certainly has, when there would be very difficult things in my life to deal with. I think we underestimate the amount of pain that we can open to. One of the reasons through this practice that we are increasingly able to open to all experience, regardless of its flavor, including painful experiences, is we begin to be quite rooted, quite um, connected to knowing temporality, to knowing that this too shall pass. When you think about the painful experiences that you have in your life, that you undertake willingly. People go to the dentist twice a year, nobody likes that, but you go anyway, because you know in two hours, no matter how unpleasant, you'll be out at the other end. People know that, so they go, and not a lot of anguish comes up around it. We know the temporality of a dental appointment. We don't believe the temporality of sorrow, or grief, or fear, or anger. We think my sorrow or my anger is going to be here forever. It is solid. One of the things that one becomes increasingly sure of through this practice is that nothing is solid and everything is temporal. And knowing that, we can with much more courage enter into, open up to all kinds of situations. To begin to see in this practice the amount of that everything is inevitable loss, we begin to see the unsatisfactoriness of life, that everything fades away. We're more able to deal with painful experiences, painful news, disappointment, grief, death, sickness, when it happens, sad as they are, because they don't seem like such an affront. They understand, really, that's what life is. It's a sadness. It's certainly a sadness, and it's a pain, but it's not an affront. Somehow we feel that magically we should be able to get through life without that, and we're surprised when something like that happens to us. There's a place where the Buddha says the most amazing thing that people do is they look around and all around them people are getting old and getting sick and getting infirm and dying and they don't think it's going to happen to them. That's a very amazing trick of mind to be able to do that. And as we begin to know quite fundamentally, not only does it happen, it's happening to everybody. It will happen here. Sooner or later, here or there, with this one or that one, there will be loss and grief. And so when it happens, it is terribly sad and terribly painful, but it's not so startling. It's not such a surprise. One of the other things that becomes quite clear in practice is the interrelated nature of all experience. The other side of impersonal is interrelated. Our connection with all that is becomes really fundamentally apparent to us. People with great spiritual belief in all spiritual traditions know that. And they're able to be with 
life experience, even the most difficult ones, with loss and with death, in a way that wouldn't be there if they didn't know that. The most dramatic story of that, one that really taught me, maybe in a direct way, I knew a woman whose daughter was a middle-aged woman and the mother was an older woman, and the daughter died of breast cancer. And her mother was with her through her illness and through her death. And uh, both of them were people of tremendous spiritual commitment and spiritual depth. They really understood in some fundamental way, really believed, they knew it, that everything changes and everything is interconnected. Life and death is how it is and it's okay. In the moment that the younger woman was dying, that very moment, she was actually struggling, gasping a little bit, And her mother was really able to hold her hand and say to her, it's all right, Mary, you're just dying. That's an incredible story. That was so powerful for me. I thought to myself, there's a way of understanding interbeing. There's a way of understanding the fullness of experience where that's okay. So that's what we see, see interbeing, see how things really are, the unsubstantial, unsatisfactory, ungraspable quality of things, fundamentally both coming from the impermanent quality of things, that things change. There's one quote from a book called Insight and Tranquility and Insight. And I'll read it to you in a minute, because it really moved me so much. I think of a story about Pascal, who had a vision of what reality was, what freedom was. And it was so illuminating, his vision, and so transformed him, that he wrote his vision on a piece of paper, and took that piece of paper and sewed it into the lining of his coat, and wore that coat every day until the rest of his life and died with that coat on. And I think to myself sometimes, what would I sew into the lining of my coat if I needed to sew something into the lining of my coat? (laughs) This is what I would sew. This is from a book called Tranquility and Insight, and it's describing mindfulness practice, saying what mindfulness practice is. It is through mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion that makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. I love that. So the how of this practice, how, is one moment at a time. We try the best we can to open to what's true. And when fear arises, we reassure ourselves. Say, this is okay. I'm really being with this painful experience because I really want to wake up. I take a breath, I calm myself down, and I open again to my experience. Vipassana is a really beautiful balanced practice where we use the omnipresent, neutral, calming experience of being with the breath and being with walking, which is really quite plain, to establish a certain level of calm to help us to open to all levels of experience, all moments of experience. We don't just say, okay, ready, set, go, open to all moments of experience. 
we use the breath and the walking as a way of establishing a base of tranquility so that we can. It's very hard to open with clarity. The mind is filled with distractions. So we do something first to establish enough calm and tranquility to be able to do it. And in this case, we've spent five days doing metta to establish a base of calm and tranquility so that we can open. People are noticing today, I know in the interviews, that beginning today with vipassana practice is different, having done those five days of metta practice. And really all of the practice is a continual dance of using a neutral and calming and establishing object to uh, consolidate the calm in the mind, consolidate the clarity in the mind, and opening to the fullness of experience with that clarity. And being with all of experience with that clarity and returning to a plain and a neutral and a calming object whenever that's appropriate. And it begins after a while to be a quite natural thing and I think you'll do it quite naturally. So that's the how. And then, just to say again, what will happen if I? Why shall I do it? How shall I do it? And what will happen? What will happen if we open to experience in a balanced, even-handed, full way? We'll see clearly. We'll see more and more clearly. Someone asked today in an interview, what's the difference between knowing and knowing? There's a difference between, what's an insight, really? What's an insight, really? Because there's a certain way in which the insights are not that much of new news to everyone. I mean, everybody knows about temporality. If we took a poll here, we said, who here think, thinks things change? Everybody would raise their hand. Who here thinks things stay the same? Nobody would raise their hand. So, is there, so what's the difference between that sort of knowing and knowing? I, when, I write it, when I write it in my notes, when I, when I think about it, I think about knowing with a small k and knowing with a capital K. So kind of a knowing in the marrow of your bones and the fiber of your being, knowing so that you cannot forget it. Knowing so that the knowing conditions understanding. Knowing temporality so it conditions your ability to be with a moment of difficulty. So talk about what's an insight, really. An insight is a moment of profound understanding. It's a moment of profound knowing. And that happens in this practice, where suddenly one has the experience in sitting, in walking, in having lunch, in making the bed, at any time there's something that happens and we absolutely know about temporality, about unsatisfactoriness, about emptiness. It's a moment of profound knowing. And then we think, well, now I'm going to know it forever. I'm never going to forget it. <laughs> and I'm going to be totally free forever. I really appreciate Stephen Levine's title of his book about a gradual awakening. Because that is my experience. And I think that Habitual patterns remain. For a while, we stay rooted in our new awareness. And habitual patterns manifest. They are the patterns of mind over a long time. That's why this is a lifelong practice. This is a practice that's a life. It isn't a practice to get anywhere. It's a practice to be here fully with ease, with openness. So we keep on practicing. To the degree that we see clearly, we're able to struggle less and suffer less and fall into not clear seeing, not not clear seeing arises, then suffering is present. I certainly suffer, not as much as I used to. 
And the difference about periods of suffering when they're present, and I know it, is that I'm even easier about them as well. Not to be panicked or hysterical about the suffering. I see myself caught in something. I know I'm not seeing clearly. No, I'm not balanced or even, but that's what it is. I'm not. And I know it'll pass. The difference between now and ten years ago is not that suffering is all gone, but frenzy about it or hysteria about it isn't such a problem. I'm not so worried about life, about what might happen. Things happen in life. Things happen in my life. Things have happened in my life that are really painful and felt a lot of pain about them. Sometimes I had pain and I was balanced and open and easy with it, and sometimes I had pain and I was caught up and I struggled with it. But it's all more manageable. Everything is manageable. Knowing temporality makes everything manageable. So there's one last thing that I'd like to say. This is another kind of an interesting thing that I think about. When we think about um, the notion of this practice, if I open to experience in a balanced and complete way, then insights will arise and wisdom will accrue and contentment and happiness and peace will be the fruit of that journey. And it sounds like a journey from here to there. There's another way of thinking about if I open to this moment in a fully balanced way, even, balanced, not pulling, not holding on, not pushing away, that is a moment of contentment and ease and peacefulness. Didn't go anywhere or get any place or achieve anything. The practice itself becomes liberation. It's a notion that I like a lot. So let's just sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 25, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.